ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm the great Brian Last, and I'm very happy to present to you once again the man whose Studcast this is, of course, the Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Hello. Nice to, nice to be here with you again, Brian. I mean, I've been chomping at the bit. Got my horse all saddled up. I can't wait to take the ride again today. I'm uh, uh, really looking forward to it. Uh, uh, I'd like to thank the fans uh, off the top here. They and and the snake pit is just blown up. I mean, the snake pit's driving people crazy, and uh, and this response from the fans has just been absolutely just through the roof. And uh, hundreds, literally hundreds of comments about it. And uh, uh, it's just it's it's I've gotten I've finally gotten to a point in in my studcast here in which I can talk about something that I personally uh, was a part of. And uh, that's really making a big difference for me. I'm really enjoying it. And I'm really happy to see that that it's taking off. Uh, fans now are beginning to hear stories that not about my grandfather anymore and not necessarily about my father. And it's about my generation and, and the things that I experienced when I started. And it's just a... Uh, it's a good place in this journey that we're on here to, to explain and to, to give the history of my family and everything. This is this is where I really have been wanting to get to this point. And from here on, the rest of these stud casts, I think, are going to take a, a great leap forward in content. Uh, uh, I feel like that fans want to hear more from about my day maybe than my grandfather's day in the 20s and the 30s. And uh, we're at that point here. As you said at the top, the response to the stories about the snake pit has been overwhelming. So because of that, naturally, we're going to return to the snake pit today and talk about someone who many people think of first when they think of the snake pit. Maybe it's Eddie Graham and this man, and that is Bob Roop. Yes, and uh, and and there's 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 a several reasons for that. Uh, uh, first, uh, I want to just give you a history and, and the fans out there a little bit of a history of Bob Roop. I like to do this. Uh, I did it uh, the last uh, cast uh, with uh, Gordon Nelson because he's not a real big name. Uh, Bob Roop is a bigger name. 
probably than Gordon was. But at the same time, uh, I like to I like to do the little bit of history on the individuals that we're going to be talking about. And 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 Roop was born uh, on in July. 22nd in 1947. He's uh, from up there in the, in the middle, in the Midwest. Uh, and uh, he actually went to Michigan State on a football scholarship. He wrestled too while he was there, but he went there on a football scholarship. Uh, in, 1960, in 1967, he won the NCAA uh, championship. Um, uh, and then after only a year and a half at Michigan State, he, he, he decided that, that he wasn't interested, I guess, in a college career or whatever. And he, he joined the Army. He went to, went to the Army. Uh, he wrestled while he was in the Army with uh, the Army to begin with and then to the all-services team. Uh, he so he continued this process of being an amateur wrestler and continued on uh, in in his time in the army. Uh, in 1968, he was selected for the Olympic Greco-Roman team for America, obviously, and uh, that the Olympics was in Mexico City in '68. Uh, he finished seventh in that competition. He lost to the Russian. Alexander Medved, uh, gosh, one of the great wrestlers of all time, Medved, uh, who actually went on to win the gold. Uh, but uh, uh, he had this experience of, of all this amateur background he was trained in. He goes back home after the Olympics. He, now he has no drays out of the Army. He's, he's looking for something to do, and he runs into Lars Anderson. And Lars Anderson takes him under his wing and starts to train him to be a professional wrestler. Uh, that group of Andersons, uh, Lars, biggest one of all, uh, body-wise, uh, similar build actually to Roop, uh, makes sense that they, he would be a trainer for Roop and he would do a good job at training Roop now to, to become a pro. Uh, Roop spends probably a year with him and he comes to Florida in 1969. At the time he arrives in Florida in 1969, he's six foot two inches tall. He weighs about 270 pounds. He has a phenomenal amateur background, and he has a certain element about him that is similar to Eddie Graham. And Eddie was, as we have spoken uh, in pretty great detail, is a very, very tough individual and his mindset uh, toward wrestling being real and to being respected is right up there with probably <laughs> the the baddest of all the baddest that's ever been around professional wrestling. He wanted everything to people to respect the business and to respect wrestlers and respect the sport. So Roop ends up coming there sixty nine. Uh, I arrived there in 1970, uh, in the fall of 1970. Uh, the snake pit is starting to take form. Uh, I don't know if it had something to do with the fact that Roop has all this amateur background and he he's in the right place at the right time, or, or Eddie realizes that he has a guy here who has the, a similar mentality to his mentality, and uh, 
and doesn't uh, doesn't hold back when it's when he's in there and he's in a shoot. And so it when we start to go down, when I start to go down to the snake pit, uh, already there's Matt Suda there, there's Bob Roop there, there's Jack Briscoe there on a semi-regular basis. Uh, so I just kind of fit in as the fourth there, and I'm kind of the low man on the totem pole because I haven't been there and I haven't experienced it very much, and I'm just kind of feeling out the, the ropes of what's going on. So I've kind of set the scene here for exactly where we are. Uh, Roop here uh, is in the snake pit. Uh, Jack Briscoe is a different element. Uh, Jack is not, it doesn't have that uh, killer instinct in Jack. Jack is such a tremendous wrestler himself and, and has such skills in the ring that he doesn't need that. Uh, and Hero is kind of the same as Jack in a way. Hero has a great, great ability uh, on the mat, uh, standing up, takedowns. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, Roop's skills in the snake pit are really at its finest when he's on his feet because he was a Greco-Roman wrestler, obviously, in college and in the Olympics. So he is very good on his feet. So I, I'm going to just go right into one of the first shoots that I saw in the snake pit. And uh, this is a, this is a, this is, I think a great story that people will really, really identify with. I want to explain that, that these people in the snake pit are not people that uh, walk in there because they want to be wrestlers. They're not there because somebody goes out there and grabs them off the street. 106 North Albany there, one of the main arteries runs down that, runs down that street and, and drags them in and throws them in the ring. Uh, these people that are here and coming into the snake pit are people that have an attitude, that have a belief that they are wrestlers. They have a belief that they're tough. They they run their mouths to the wrong people. Uh, a lot of them have personally spoken to Eddie. And if you say something to Eddie Graham about derogatory about the sport or you question its uh, reality uh, you are you're putting yourself in very big danger and eddie was very cool about just saying well come on down and then we'll see uh whether your whether you your statement here is correct or not uh, depending on what the person says so this is one of my first instances of being there in the pit uh, when someone came in and this is Eddie's not here this day. Uh, Eddie's not always there, but Eddie tried to be almost always there when someone was going to come in because he wanted to see, uh, how it was handled. He wanted to see them get what he thought they deserved. And if you didn't do it, then sometimes Eddie took it upon himself to do it. In this case, Eddie's not here this particular day. I think on this day, it's only Roop, Matsuda, and I. And a the Eddie Lay, I mean Charlie Lay, who uh, runs the uh, the is at the front desk, basically in the office complex, comes in and brings a gentleman with him, and the guy has his his wife or his girlfriend. Now I don't know which it is, but it's 
Yeah, I thought that was unusual. And uh, I could see by Roop's expression and by Hero's expression that they they weren't used to seeing wives or women there. And this lady comes in and she's chewing gum uh, very oddly. Like, like I got the impression when I first saw her and the way she was chewing the gum that she was really bored and she was really uh, upset that she was even having to be there. Uh, I got the feeling, you know, that maybe this guy had been bragging for a long time about what he could do and how tough he was. And if he ever got his hands on one of these wrestlers, how how badly he could hurt them. And so she sits down on the first row. Now, we're in the television studios in which the championship wrestling from Florida was televised from uh, where they made the program each week. So there's quite a bit of, there's bleachers in the background. Uh, there's the ring up in the same position. It never got take. It never gets taken down. It's there where it always is for recording television programs. And the lights are out everywhere except over the ring. It's dark in the rest of the building, very dark. And so, the lady sits down in the first row, and Matsuda and I, we get out of the ring, uh, and the guy goes back to change his clothes. Now, when he comes out of the dressing room, he has on the, he makes his first mistake. He walks out of the dressing room, and he has a mask on. I mean, it's like, this is not a place for a mask. I mean, it was. <laughs> You know, you, you you don't you don't come to this uh, uh, wearing a mask uh, because it's going to make whoever it is that's in the ring with you uh, that much more intense about about the, what they're doing. Uh, it's like no respect. It's like he's been extremely disrespectful. He considers himself obviously be some kind of mask wrestler, and that he's going to come in here and show us how to wrestle and, and, and show us what a great talent he is in the ring and how bad he is. So, uh, Roop wants him because he sees the mask and he, he basically rolls into the ring and the guy gets into the ring and the guy is probably, uh, I'm going to guess he was probably 220 pounds. Maybe he's maybe six feet tall. He's fairly well built. Uh, and his, so they get started, and the, the first thing that Bob does is uh, he, he gets him back into the ropes, and he just grabs the mask and just takes it off the guy's face. You know, I mean, it's like they do it like he's not like he wasn't even going to wrestle him with a mask on. Are you kidding me? You know, you're you're in the wrong place if you think you're a wrestler here because you got to prove you're a wrestler. So. Then the next thing he does is he gets the guy into the sugar hole. Now, it doesn't take him very long. Uh, we've gotten to be pretty good at the sugar hole to this point. Uh, and Matsuda and I and Roop are all, it, it, we're comfortable with that being the what you want to finish him with. And in Roop's case, it was probably 95% of his shoots he would finish with, those, with that, that sugar hold because it was easy and simple to get into. So he gets the sugar hold on the guy, 
and the guy is starting to squeal a little bit. I mean, he's he's got him cranked up there, and he's really got a lot of leverage on his elbows. He's got his weight, and Roop's a big guy. He's 270 pounds. He's forcing those elbows almost to touch each other behind the guy's head. So I know the pain that this guy's going through. He can't, at this point, holler. So he just he just whimpers. He's, he makes these oh, little horrible, like, whiny noises. And I, I look at his wife. Uh, Hero and I both <laughs> look at his wife, and she's still chewing her gum, very unconcerned, like, this ain't hurting. This ain't real, you know, the, 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 you know. Uh, either either she's got that attitude or she's kind of almost happy that he's getting what he deserves. He's been telling me what he's going to do, and now I see exactly what's going to happen to him. So Root puts the sugar on him, and he, he cranks him pretty good. And the guy can't – there's no referees, uh, so there's nobody there to, to say, okay, get off of him, give it up. So Bob just keeps cranking on him, and he's 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 kind of squealing, and he's making all the noises, and he, and he starts to to flail with his legs, uh, trying to just anything to save his life. Now, he's really got wind cut off. He's got no oxygen. His elbows are almost touching each other behind his head. He's in a very, very bad situation, and he knees Bob. <laughs> I think it's accidentally, <laughs> but he, he knees Bob in the face. And uh, when he does, it, it busts Bob's nose a little bit. He starts to bleed a little bit out of his nose. So, so Bob kind of like he, he I, I don't know what he's going to do at this point. You know, I, I know now that he's upset Bob. He's made him mad now. So Bob lets him go, and he gets up. And uh, Bob had a move that he did a lot as in the in the ring, and he he had a great knee drop. He was big anyway and had big legs, and he would drop knees into your back or into your belly or into your side, on your arm, wherever it was. And it was a pretty effective move. It looked really good. Uh, but this time, in this case, now he's mad, and this guy's got no business uh, being there to begin with. He's wasted everybody's time. He's been in the ring less than probably two minutes, and now he's kneed Bob in the face. And he's kind of bro busted his nose. So Bob gets up off of him, and the guy kind of leans back like he, he's got he's trying to catch his breath. And Bob drops one of those knees in his face. And uh, I'm like, wow, geez, I mean, uh, you know, it's nasty. I mean, blood kind of flies across the ring. And, and uh, I look again at his wife. You know, I'm like, wow, this is heavy. And uh, and she's still, well, she's like chewing her gum. It's nothing, no big deal here. You know, that's ain't real, you know. Uh, so so then the guy grabs his face and he and then uh, he he's laying on his back and Bob drops it, the next knee right in his stomach. Uh and it takes all the wind out of him. You can hear the the, the wind in, the, in his lungs. It just expels it all in a big gasp. And uh, then he kind of sits up and he falls back. Bob drops another one in his face, another one in his stomach. 
it's like, wow, you know, this is this is this is beginning to get out of hand right away. And his wife is still just there very calmly, just watching it like, uh, you know, she's, this can't be real. Or if it or, you know, I, I, I can't imagine where her mind is by the way she's acting. So the guy rolls out to the floor and he starts. There's a door in which the fans come through for television in which they I think back in those days, they sold them tickets for TV and uh, there was an entrance there and he saw that door and he he was kind of bent with his hanging his right arm down because Bob had put the sugar on him. Like I said, his elbows almost touching. So he had probably hurt one shoulder and uh, he was kind of leaning and dragging that shoulder and he was able to get the door open and he started to run. And when he started to run, Bob took off after him. I'd seen this before, too. Actually, uh, you know, this this as time goes by here, it's going to become a commonplace scene where these guys get themselves in a situation where they they're looking for an exit. They're looking for a way to get out of that building and maybe save their life. And so this guy now he's he's bleeding pretty badly. And he's hanging his shoulder. He gets that door open and he starts out. He gets out the front door, the front entrance to that side of the building. And Bob chases him. He turns left when he goes out onto Albany, which is a small street. And he starts running down that street and Bob chases him. So (laughs) Hero and I, we walk outside to see if Bob's going to catch him because we figure we ain't going to have to pull Bob off of him. And, uh, and, and the guy's got a little head start on Bob and it doesn't look like Bob's going to catch him. So we go back inside. We go to his wife, you know, I'm almost wanting to apologize to her about, you know, what she's just seen. And, 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 uh, maybe this is far more than what she expected. And, uh, you know, the, to, to say something to her and, and she gets up very slowly as she looks at hero and I, and she, uh, just kind of, she's still chewing her gum and she goes, well, I guess I better get his clothes. And she goes <laughs> She goes back to the dressing room and she collects his clothes and she very calmly walks out of the building. I mean, the, 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 the thing that really gets me most about this particular shoot is not what happened in the ring and not what went on with Bob and the guy, but it's this wife or this girlfriend that just is so calm about the entire thing. And I kept going back to the thought that, you know, he had been bragging. He must have driven her crazy for a month or ever how long he had made his appointment to come into the pit. And he had been waiting and bragging about what he was going to do. And she would probably had had enough. And she was probably as happy to see what happened to him. So Bob comes back in the building. And we talk a little bit about what's going on. Uh, she gets the stuff. She walks out the same door that her husband or her boyfriend runs out of. And and in a few minutes, uh, the cops come. And they have, as on several occasions, uh, they park up at the front door. They come and speak to Charlie. Charlie brings the police back there. They say, look, uh, we found a guy down the street that's uh, pretty beat up, 
you know, he's kind of bloody and he's, he's hurt. And, uh, you know, and we, f- we figure this is where he came from because <laughs> that was pretty much the MO around there and they were aware of it. And so he says, uh, to Bob, he says, uh, I think he says that you were the one that wrestled him. And Bob says, yes, I am. And so he says, well, I'd like to have you go out here and, uh, and identify him. So, Bob goes out and and Hero and I we go out behind him and and they've got the guy in the back seat of the car. Now his wife is standing there uh at the front door entrance to the uh, the other side entrance where the fans go in and she's not too far away. She's listening to the conversation and the cop says uh is that the guy? Bob bends down, he looks and he's in the back seat of the cop car. And yeah, obviously he's the guy. I mean, you know, he's he's not looking too good. He's still kind of leaning over with his right arm hurt. And the policeman, Bob goes, yeah, yeah, that's the guy. And the policeman opens the door and he reaches in and he grabs the guy and he jerks him out onto the street right there beside where the sportatorium, just right there on the sidewalk. And he says, uh, he goes, are you an idiot or what? He goes, what are you doing down here? He goes, you're lucky that you're not hurt worse than you are. And the guy says, well, ain't you going to do anything to this guy? Aren't you going to take him to jail? And he goes, absolutely not. He goes, you had no business being here. And he says, my advice to you is to get your ass out of here as fast as you can. And the guy went walking off down the sidewalk, still leaning sideways, hanging his shoulder, uh, still bloody as heck. His wife grabs his arm, and I don't know where he's parked, but I guess he goes to his car, and that's the end of one of my first experiences at actually seeing uh, seeing one of these shoots. And the woman was casual the entire time, even after the event. She never changed her demeanor one (laughs) bit from the time she walked in and sat down until she got him by the arm, helping him back to his car to leave. And that was the part that just really blew me away, you know, how she could have been so calm. It was almost like she either didn't think it was real or she just wanted him to get it. One of the two. But, uh, that left me with the that was the most striking part of the whole thing was was that particular incident and and how she handled that and how 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 badly he got his 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 rear end handed to him and uh ended up in a real bad situation and that happened quite a few times with people that came through there uh lots of times they didn't go away bloody uh, but there were occasions in which uh, you you shot with somebody and Eddie wasn't satisfied with the outcome and Eddie would take it upon himself to uh, to finish him. I, let me I, I'll just put it that way. He would finish him off, and uh, uh, it was not a bad. It was not a good place for anybody to show up if they really thought they were tough. Uh, they had made a real mistake by bringing their butts down there to 106 North Albany. Did you ever see anyone that was actually competitive in there with Roop or anyone else? There were on occasion guys that were that that had some wrestling ability, and you could see the skills. But 
we were we were in a mode there that that uh, just and and we had trained so hard and 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 we shot with each other when there was nobody like this to shoot with we shot with each other and and we were in tremendous shape because we not only wrestled every night but we went down there you'd come in from miami at three o'clock in the morning and i'd be in the snake pit at nine thirty. I wouldn't sleep five and a half hours. I'd be in the snake pit at 9.30, and we'd be there at 11 o'clock sometimes. That building, and that I need to add this, that sportatorium had no air conditioning. So we're in Tampa. It had a tin roof. So we're in Tampa, Florida, uh, and it's, it's it, gosh, unbearable in there in the mornings. You So if you go and do that for an hour, hour and a half in the morning, and then you get your butt in the car and you travel for four hours and you wrestle for 30 or 45 minutes that night in another match, it doesn't take very long for you to end up in such tremendous wrestling shape. And we were learning so much shooting. Uh uh, a la, uh, we go back to the last episode uh, to to our boy Gordon Nelson, uh, who taught us the sugar. Uh, we were learning these killer moves and these very painful holes. We were learning how to really do what we were doing, and and it was it was a it was a very very uh, bad place for people to show up. We will continue with stories from the snake pit in just a moment. But first, this word about Super Studcast number four with Robert Fuller. Your attention, stud fans. There are now four Super Studcasts available for all fans eager to hear a two-hour in-depth wrestling history lesson. Andre the Giant, Rabbit Ron Wright, Crazy Caribbean Chaos, and the new first-ever live event with both Ron and Robert the Fuller Brothers on a podcast for the first time. If you'd like to hear any or all of these four three-hour total exclusive content for each Super Studcast, it's only $2.99. Go to TN. Stud.com. That's TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. That's Patreon.com slash studcast. Thanks to all of our patrons who support all studcast by listening to the Super Studcast. The Robert Fuller Super Studcast is now available and is being labeled the best of the four so far. And we've got a special treat for those who may not have heard the popular promo done by the brothers for this one. Thanks again to Studcast fans all over the world for your continued support. And now it's my distinct pleasure to introduce the legendary Fuller Welch Brothers. I want to congratulate you. You're just tearing up the podcast world. The Superstar cast is just setting records, doing great. Just wanted to thank you for it. Good job, man. Uh, well, I don't know why you'd be surprised. I got over 5,000 Facebook fans out there that want to talk all the time and and we'd like to be friends together, and I'm sure they'll follow me a little bit. And so, yeah, I'm not a bit surprised you didn't roll it in the dough, son. Well, I don't know about rolling in the dough, but uh, it is really getting a great response. I'm really happy for that. And I want to thank everybody that's tuned in and everybody that's listened to it. And if you haven't listened to it, you can pick it up at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Two ninety nine. For almost three hours of entertainment, actually more than three hours of entertainment. There it is, Super Studcast number four with Robert Fuller, of course, available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only 
$2.99 a month. You get access to so much bonus material. We'll have more about that at the end of the program. But now, let's return to the snake pit. Let's return to Tampa, and we're talking Bob Roop. Yes, uh, just to just to mention a few of the things that comments that I, that I had this past week uh, uh, that just were absolutely amazing how how people uh, perceived this. You know, some people said, "Gosh, that's that's horrible and uh, it's terribly brutal," and it is. You know, there's no there's no soft sell here. There's no way to get around that. But uh, then we had I had another element uh, probably 70 percent that said those guys had no business being there and whatever happened to them because they were stupid enough to go there they probably deserved so that surprised me uh that there's such a difference in opinion there of about about this snake pit situation now snake pits uh this is an unusual thing in professional wrestling. I, I'm not a, I can't, I'm not a professor about this, and I've never done a lot of research on it. But in my mind, I can only think of one other territory that there was something similar to this, and that was uh, Stu Hart in uh, in uh, Alberta, Canada. Uh, uh, Stu Stu was Stu was an old shooter. A really good, good shooter, a big time old like my granddad and my father in the fact that they came up as shooters and they they had that respect for it and that admiration for it. I think that Stu Hart had the same same sense of as what Eddie the same respect for wrestling that Eddie had. And whenever anybody had the had the stupidity to say something to him that was not respectful, then Stu took them into his own snake pit. And uh, I happen to know from a fact that uh, his snake pit was was maybe just about as bad, if not worse, than, than the one that I was in there on a daily basis or just about a daily basis. And Stu had a—it was in his home in his basement. In his basement was a small basement. He had a ring, and the ring just barely fit into the room. And I know this from experience because Archie Goldie, the Mongolian stomper, wrestled for me for many years. In Southeastern, in Knoxville, I came down with Southeastern in Pensacola as well. And Archie was trained by Stu Hart. And Archie wanted to become a wrestler. And Stu was really hard on him. Uh, as as most people were when you were a young guy and you wanted to be a wrestler uh, and you got hooked up with I'll give you another example um, my granddad's brother Herb Herb trained David Schultz and and uh, and honky tonk man Wayne Ferris uh, and and Herb took no he, he took no prisoners I mean it was rough I have heard David Schultz talk about his training from Herb. And uh, Archie was trained by Stu. Stu was there to just to discourage you. They weren't there. You didn't train guys because you wanted to see them be wrestlers. You took them in these first instances of when they get into the ring, and you want to find out what they're made out of. You want to find out if they've got it in them to be a wrestler and if they're tough 
or if they're just going to fold, uh, you find a whole lot about a guy when you put them under that type of stress and that type of competition uh, the first time they get into the ring. And Stu took Archie and 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 worked him over big time. Uh, so Archie told me, he says, he says, Ron, I didn't quit. He said, I just kept wanting to, you know, he said he would hurt me and I would scream and he would let me loose and we would start again and he would hurt me and I would scream. And he said, it's just kept going and going. And he said, but he, he said, I didn't realize, he said that he had, Stu was a pretty, Stu was a pretty crazy guy. Uh, and and uh, I love Stu Hart. Uh, yeah, he was, he had a very odd way of talking. He would be like, get the run there. You know, this guy, he tried to fight me, man. Uh, Archie, uh, he, he, I had to take care of him. Yeah. Now, nah. so uh, Stu had gone around because this ring was just big enough to get into, into this basement. He drove nails into his wall, little penny nails, small nails. He knew where the nails were. And if he got in trouble, with a guy, he would pick him up and drive him backwards on those nails. <laughs> so this is not, this is this is pretty heavy duty stuff here. But this was what wrestling was like way back in the day, and you had to really be you had to be committed and you had to be tough if you wanted to do it. And uh, Archie got driven on the nails, and he told me he says the first time I didn't quit that first round, the first night. And he said, until he drove me on the nail. And he says, gosh, when he ripped my back, he was like, whoa, you know, these, the, this ain't right. So, you know, what happens is, is you train somebody and you get somebody in the position they, that you want to test them. And if they want to come back, that's a good sign. That's a sign that they're got it in them and that they might be able to make or become a, a wrestler. And they've got the stamina and the guts to hang in there. So I'm going to tell about one other instance, uh, probably three months after the, the incident that I spoke of earlier, uh, another day in which uh, Eddie wasn't there. And uh, Bob Roop got this one again. I mean, we kind of like took turns and, 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 you know, if a guy came in, it was, it was his turn. Uh, uh, next guy came in, it might be my turn. Next guy came in, it's hero's turn. If Jack's there, it could be Jack's turn. Usually, if Eddie's there, he designates who's going to take these guys. Uh, and so, in this case, it's Roop again. And this guy is a bigger guy. Um, this guy's probably about 6'4". I'd say he's pretty close to Roop's size. Uh, he's a big guy. and uh, He's got a little belly on him, but uh, you can tell he's got some muscle, too. And uh, so Bob ends up, ends up in there with him. And Bob does something to him that I'd never seen before or since. I don't think Bob had ever done that to anybody before either, probably. But somehow... In the first part of their shoot, uh, Bob gets a, a almost like a bear hug on the guy. He bends down, though, and gets him really low around his hips. Bob's arms are hooked around the guy's hips. And when he straightens up, the guy's feet are like two feet off the mat, and his head is a couple of feet above Bob's head. 
they're face to face, belly to belly. Uh, and so Bob going to suplex him uh, now, but he's going to suplex him. Most of the time you back, you belly to back a guy. If you're going to suplex a guy, he's got his back turned. You grab him from behind. Your belly is up against his back and you suplex him back onto the back of his head. And your body is, is underneath him. And you bridge up and you could pin him or whatever. It's a it's a very good move. It's a very good move. And it's a very punishing and a dangerous move. Uh, really hurt people uh, doing a suplex. But in this case, Bob f- hooks him from the front. So they're belly to belly. The guy's head is sticking two feet out higher than Bob's head. And his feet don't touch the floor. And Bob suplexes him just like it was a belly-to-back suplex, exactly the same form and the same style, so that when he goes backwards, Bob goes backwards on his, uh, basically going to land on his head, and but this guy's face and upper body hits the mat face first before Roop's body touches the mat. Uh, there's a sound there that, Gosh, I mean, you know, there's sometimes sounds and shoots in which you never hear people do. And there's one in this particular move in which Bob does not stop. He does not go backward and in and, and like a bridge. Uh, he just continues to bring his own body over on top of the guy so that it bends the guy's back backwards into like your back isn't meant to bend that direction you when you bend forward it's simple and easy you're flexible when you take somebody and try to bend them backwards it's it's not good and uh i thought he broke his back uh he landed on his face it broke his nose his nose was bleeding and his face and arms hit the mat face first bob came on over his body so that bent him up backwards, and he made a horrible noise. Like, uh, hey, you, uh, Hero and I looked at each other like, oh, my gosh, man, that this guy, is, he, he might not get up ever. And, and, and then Bob just rolled off of him because he knew that, you know, this guy's finished. Uh, he never, the guy laid there probably for two or three minutes uh, just just really in a in a great deal of pain, obviously, and he. I think I think well, he actually was in the ring, and we left because we had been in there shooting for a while before he got there. That I think he was still there in the ring, probably fifteen minutes after he took the bump. Uh, there's no doctor there, you know. There's nobody to check on him. Uh, we assumed he's going to be able to get up and get out of there himself of his own power. And uh, I think we just uh, went home. We basically got our gear and we were about finished anyway. And we went home. Uh, So there were things in that snake pit that just went on that were, that were really, really brutal as heck. Uh, There's not any other way to put it, but uh, there were I don't think there was ever an instance in which the person came in there that didn't uh, precipitate it or didn't bring this problem upon himself by saying something to the wrong person. And in a lot of cases, it's Eddie himself. And uh, it's a 
bad place to end up in there. Were you ever around Stu Hart? Did you run into him at an NWA convention or something? All the time. And uh, and he was very fond of Archie, the stomper, because Archie was one of his greatest greatest trainers. Uh, I mean, Archie was one of his greatest students. Archie went on to become, a, obviously, a great star. Uh, I love Archie. Uh, the Mongolian stomper was, in my opinion, one of the greatest uh, athletes, too, of all time, and uh, just a tremendous body. And and every time I was at the convention in Las Vegas, Stu would come to talk to me about Archie. And that's why I had his voice down so well, because he always said the same things. And he was, it took him a while to, to, to get his point, you know, and he would say, uh, got to run the, uh, you, uh, Archie, 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 uh, got to, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'd say Archie. I'd, 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 I'd do the conversation for him, basically. I'd say Archie. Yeah, yeah, got the arch, arch, yeah. How, uh, how, uh, how, uh, how's Har- Archie? Is Archie, uh, how, uh, how's he doing? Yeah, yeah, how's he doing? I mean, it was like, it was like having the conversation with Stu was great. And, uh, and uh, there were so many great stories of Stu that I got from the Funks, as an example. The Terry and Junior used to go up and do the, the stampede. Every year they have the big rodeo there. Yeah, and then when they had the rodeo, uh, he would put them up in his house. And, and Stu had this big house on the top of a hill there. And uh, Terry and Junior would tell me stories about about how Stu, how it was to be around Stu. Uh, crazy stuff. Like uh, he said that they had, they told me one story. They said Stu had cats. He had a lot of cats in the house. And they just roamed everywhere and went wherever they wanted to. Uh, he said that one morning that Stu was cooking them eggs. And they're sitting at a little table in the kitchen and they're talking to him, and he's like, "Good day, you know, I'm doing this and that," and he's he's giving them some kind of story, and a cat comes through, and the cat poops on the floor behind Stu. Stu's making them eggs. He's got the spatula, and he's flipping the eggs, and he looks around, and he goes, "Got the the cat, the uh, this cat, you know what the heck?" And uh, then he he goes and uh, takes the spatula, and he. He, he, he scoops up the poop and he opens the screen door and he flips it outside and he comes back and starts uh, flipping the eggs again. <laughs> so, so and, and the folks are there like, gosh, and looking at each other. Did you see what he did? And he, <laughs> so he said, then when they have breakfast, he says they're in the middle of the meal and uh, the boys, all of Stu's family, they, there's Owen and then, then, you know, all of those a great group of guys and, and, and daughters as well. Long table, they said. And he said they were having lunch and their salad was there. And he said a cat jumped up on the table, ran the length of the table, and it ran through the salad bowl. And the, and the salad stuck to his claws. So he said that was crazy. He couldn't believe that. You know, gosh, look at this, man. Uh, you know, and Stu just kept eating. He, Stu had one of those... Back in the days, many, many years ago, I don't know, probably a lot of people have seen this, a lot of people haven't. In the old supermarkets and the old grocery stores, they had this long pole that had a little grasp thing at the end that you could 
reach up real high on a shelf and and it had a hook on the end and when you pulled it at the bottom it closed and it would close on whatever article you wanted and you'd take it off the shelf and and lower the pole down and then get your product whatever it was he had one of those on his floor and uh, i said well what was that all about and he said well he goes we'll tell you ryan he goes owen or one of the boys was giving him a problem. He's at the far end of the table down there. And he says, uh, Stu's like, uh, God, uh, you better shut up down there. He's talking to the kid. And then and, and he, he was young. Whoever it was, it was young at that time. And uh, he said the kid didn't shut up. And he says, so Stu reached down there and he picked up that long pole and he swung it around over the table. Everybody had to duck their heads because they knew it was coming. They ducked their heads down, and he hooked it around his throat and cinched up on the bottom of him. He said, God damn, you little bastard. And he says he turned the chair over backwards with him in the chair, slammed him up against the wall, you know, and, 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 just, uh, and then just let the pole go and fell in the floor and then just kept eating. Well, you know, I guess that straightened him out. The little bastard, you know. So, I mean, Stu Hart was a he was a tremendous guy and a character beyond, I guess, most uh, most anybody I ever knew. He was back from my granddad's day and close to that same time frame. And one of those guys that's just just tough, really tough. And uh, and he uh, he he made things difficult for his boys and his boys. I had great respect for. His boys were great talents in the ring, and everybody in that family are related to him that married the daughters. I don't care who it is. All of those guys, uh, they went through that uh, snake pit of stews that was down there in his basement, and uh, that's one of the reasons. Yeah, they went, they went through the same thing. Well, Ron, we're getting a little tight on time, but we have a little bit of time for a couple of questions from the listeners. Our first one here is from Jesse Thorogood. In Kansas City, Missouri, how did it affect you when you saw some of the brutal action in the snake pit? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, <clears throat> it was difficult. There were times when it was difficult uh, because there were times probably when it when it was taken a little bit too far, and uh, uh, and and a lot of those times had more to do with Eddie than than with Bob or with Hero or or certainly not Jack. Jack Jack had his own style as a shooter, and uh, Jack just uh, sacked him up and uh, and Jack Jack could beat him like a pin him. You know, I mean he he had the ability to just pin guys, and he didn't really want to hurt guys. And and honestly, Jack didn't really know a lot of shooting moves. Jack was a fabulous amateur wrestler that only lost one lie, one match in his entire life as an amateur wrestler from the age of seven or eight years old, all the way through winning three national championships at Oklahoma. He's just fabulous. And uh, he would pin him. He would just pin him. He would put holes on him and pin him. Uh, so he didn't have that 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 real uh, the professional background because as amateurs you couldn't hurt guys. So he didn't have that type of training, and his style was a little different. But where most of the bad things happened that I thought 
were beyond what it should have gone and where it should have been is is occurred with Eddie. And it, it would usually occur when Eddie didn't think you had done the job properly. And he liked to, I, I noticed, I, I listened to a little bit of, of a Bob Roop interview. And, uh, and he spoke about what Terry Funk told him about the snake pit there in Florida. And Terry's and Terry probably saw a lot of this uh, because Terry's father, Dory Funk Sr., was in that same time frame as my dad and as Eddie's time frame. And he very much into respect for the business. And and if guys didn't believe it, you you made them believe it. And uh, so Terry, t- Terry had a discussion with Bob Roop, and Bob told uh, uh, in this conversation that I heard uh, said that, you know, Terry said, you, what you got to do, Bob, is, is you – if you continue to hurt them with wrestling holes, they he Terry's way used the term mark them. You've got to mark them, and by that he meant they need to leave bleeding. They need to leave with a busted eye, something that somebody can see, so that when they get in front of their friends, because a lot of these people that are coming down there, they're going to do this. Tell their buddies, I'm going down there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to show them this, show them that. And they put themselves into that position. And and according to Terry, they need to leave there with something that's visible. Because a lot of times they would be humiliated and hurt horribly. But a week later, when they can get out of bed again and when they start to heal up, that if they got no marks or no scars or nothing on them, they have a tendency to tell their friends that, oh, I beat the hell out of them guys. They don't know nothing down there. They're not tough. It's not tough like you think it is. It's a bunch of phony and crap. And uh, that's certainly not the case. But uh, that was Terry's uh, thoughts as far as, as marking them. And I'm sure because... As we talked about last week, Gordon Nelson spent a lot of time in Amarillo with uh, with Junior and Terry and with uh, Dory Funk Sr. And I'll guarantee you that, uh, you know, he probably marked quite a few of those guys himself. And Terry learned that in the process there somewhere. I'm sure Terry was shooting with uh, Gordon Nelson. So was Dory Jr. That helped them become world champions, uh, to have everything it took to be a world champion. And it was a atmosphere out there. Uh, and it was pretty much the same. You wanted to, you wanted them to leave. Eddie wanted them to leave there marked. That was it. So basically that's probably the bottom line. And in order to mark somebody, you've usually got to do more than just wrestle and stretch them. You've got to go take it to another extreme. Well, again, going back to the question, how does that affect you seeing that? Cause I mean, here's Eddie, a guy you have a lot of respect for a family friend, and he's doing that. How does it affect you witnessing all that? And also, was there anyone there who could have said Eddie enough? Uh, I'll answer the second one first. No. (laughs) Uh, No one that I ever saw was in there that could have stopped Eddie. Uh, Once Eddie started, oh, he was was maniacal. 
it, it was it was and and I, I think I told I mentioned one of this when I did the first uh, snake pit uh, uh, episode. Uh, I was there and saw him the first time I ever saw him in doing it and just going off on somebody. Uh, I looked at either with Hero or Bob and I said, uh, uh, "We got to do something." And uh, they said, "No, no, don't try." I was like, well, you know, and I figured that they'd seen it. They'd been there before me, and they'd seen it more times than I was seeing it, and this was probably the first time I ever witnessed it. And uh, he, 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 there was no stopping him. And uh, I asked Bob, I think, afterward, I said, What's, what would he have done if he had a start? He said, he might have started on you, Ron. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's it. it you know, I'm I'm trying to make light of this in a way, but it's very very difficult. It affected me in a in an odd way. Uh, I I had respect for the fact that that we're going to wrestle these guys. We're going to show them in a wrestling form uh, how wrong you are about whatever brought you in here. Uh, because that's why you're here. Obviously you're, you're here because you've said something disrespectful and we're going to leave you with a different, uh, perspective of what shooting's all about and what wrestling is all about. Uh, and Eddie's, Eddie's mindset was a little bit different. It, he wasn't happy with that sometimes. And he wanted to take it to that level where I'm going to leave you marked. And, uh, it was a it was a difficult. It was a little bit difficult for me. I'm a young guy. I'm a 21, 22 years old. Uh, I'm witnessing something that don't doesn't go on many places in the world. Uh, maybe a little bit up there in uh, in Alberta, uh, but uh, not a whole lot in Calgary. You know, the, up there in Calgary, uh, there was a there was a little bit of a snake pit, but. Uh, it was an unusual place to be and an unusual sight to see. And I don't think a whole lot of wrestlers ever witnessed it. We have time for one more question this week, Ron. And this one is from Jim Wolfenbarger in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. Who was your biggest ego problem to work with? Explain the difficulties in dealing with egos within the business as a promoter. All right. Well, that seems like two questions here. Okay, so uh, <laughs> it certainly does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of like two questions. Uh, uh, who was the biggest ego problem to work with? Now, I assume he means to wrestle in the ring with. Uh, there were there were a lot of guys that had reputations uh, for for maybe uh, taking over and maybe. Uh, Doing what they wanted to, uh, to 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 have their will and have their way in the ring. And uh, uh, I read something the other day which really surprised me, and I wasn't aware of this. Uh, Joe LaDuke, uh, this is an example of this probably. Joe LaDuke, somewhere in a match in Memphis, working with Jerry Lawler, took Lawler not part of the match, not talked about or anything else, got upset, I assume, with Lawler and picked him up, carried him to the edge of the ring and threw him. I've wrestled in that Coliseum many times in Memphis, and they had a table that set back probably six feet away from the ring. 
uh, wasn't right at ringside. Like a lot of times tables are sitting at ringside. This one sits about six feet back from the ring. Lance Russell sits there. A couple of other, a timekeeper sits there. you got two or three people sitting there at that table. And Joe LaDuke, uh, just out of nowhere, decides that Jerry Lawler has done something he didn't like. He picks him up and carries him above his head to the ropes and throws him six feet in the air on top of that table, breaks Lawler's leg. Uh, the, you know, that, uh, that kind of stuff, that's, that's, that's kind of an ego problem. Something happened there that set Joe LaDuke off. And, and uh, it's one of the reasons, uh, Brian, that, that I went to the snake pit because I did not want to down the road. I'm young. I'm just starting. And I know that there's a lot of ego in the business and there's guys that are going to be asked to do jobs for you, uh, going to be asked to do something that they don't want to do, whatever it may be. And there can be potentially a bad time in the ring with, uh, if you don't have respect i think the time i spent in the snake pit and people knowing that i was there it made a difference for me my entire career i never was much concerned that somebody was going to try to take liberties uh so i guess that's kind of my answer uh i i had I've, i didn't have any problems like that I never had an in the ring problem in which somebody was just going to say, all right, I'm going to do what do you, what I want to. And, uh, and I, I, I always attributed that to, to being in the snake pit, that that saved me maybe from some bad situations that other wrestlers encountered. And I think a lot of them did. I think there's a great percentage of them at one time or another got themselves into a situation in which things are not going to be a work anymore, and it looks like it's going to turn the other direction. And if you didn't have that background, you didn't want to be in that spot because you could end like Jerry Lawler did that time with a with a broken leg very easily. Uh, second part of this, I guess, is dealing with it as a as a promoter, and that's <clears throat> that's that is a whole different ballgame. There, that's. The, you've got tremendous egos in, in the sport of wrestling. Uh, guys get, they train hard and they get these tremendous bodies and they, they feel like that, that they are better than they are. Sometimes they, they, they begin to believe in, in themselves more than they should be believing in themselves. Uh, when you talk to somebody about going over or, you know, you're not going over or what it may, whatever it may be, sometimes you encounter, you encounter that ego. Uh, people, and I always tried to deal with it as a promoter. I would try to deal with it by just sitting and talking to them and explaining that, that, uh, that it's a work. <laughs> I mean, if, if you really want to shoot, then, you know, Maybe you need to go somewhere else or you need to find somebody else that wants to shoot with you. And uh, we're here to, to do what needs to be done. And if you don't want to do what needs to be done, then you need to tell me and, and you'll, 
you, I'll let you go somewhere else. In fact, I'll encourage you to. In fact, I'll send you somewhere else if you'd <laughs> like for me to. Yeah, I mean, you know, you just you're very you're very put to the point, and uh, and guys very quickly, they realize it when they hear it, and and even better, they realize before they ever meet you. Sometimes they hear what type of businessman you are, and they know what to expect before they go there because others have been there and and made try to make their point about I don't want to do this I don't want to do that and they end up uh, you can reason with most guys and if you can't you you send them someplace else they need to go work someplace else and uh, that was always my opinion as as a promoter as we begin to wrap things up, a few notes. This is usually when we tell you how you can follow the Tennessee Stud on Facebook. Well, we want to make a note here. The Ron Fuller Welch Facebook page is now totally full. We cannot actually physically get, I guess not physically, but we can't actually get any more friends on that page. But you can go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. And that Facebook page will be just the same as the other one, but we can get an unlimited amount of people there. So once again, on Facebook, like Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. You can also follow the Tennessee stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You guys know how it works. TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. There are now four super studcasts available. Andre the Giant, Ron Wright, Caribbean Chaos, and of course, Robert Fuller. All are three total hours of wrestling history for only $2.99 a month at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Don't forget, it's three hours because two hours for each super studcast and then the rest of the story and the rest of the Robert Fuller story will be released on Sunday, April 29th. So once again, go to tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. The next super studcast will be with... WWE Hall of Famer Bullet Bob Armstrong coming on Sunday, May 13th. And boy, that's going to be an exciting one. But when it comes to the stud cast, Ron, what will be our topic next week? Well, next week, Brian, I've given it some thought here. And and I ran a video, actually ran a video of, of a shoot from the snake pit that that a, a fan sent to me. And... The response was just absolutely through the roof. Uh, you know, I, I, it was a perfect example of a picture being worth a thousand words. And, uh, you know, I can sit here and talk all day about what it looks like. But, you know, to actually see it, you know, it's it's pretty brutal. It's it's it 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 affects people differently and it, and it affects everybody a little differently. Some some say, well, that guy had it coming. Some say, oh, that was way too much. Uh, so, so it, it started a fire on Facebook. I, I put this, this video on my Facebook, both Facebook sites, and it was viewed by a lot of people, obviously. And I mean, the comments were just amazing. So, so because they were all over the place and then it was a, it was a comments about what happened in the video and about the snake pit in general. So I'm going to do something that, that I have never done before. Uh, I, I have had a stud cast. I did three on the uh, zany night in Georgia. My dad's uh, 38,000 crowd in Atlanta in 1965. I, I've devoted three stud casts to that. Well, I'm going to devote a fourth stud cast to the snake pit just simply because 
of what of all the talk and and what has gone on here concerning it and everybody that I want to finish it basically I I, I want to finish the talking about it and I also I want to I want to have fans that didn't get to see this uh, give them the opportunity if they would like to and some of them may not want to I would understand that but I'm going to run on both my Facebook sites on Saturday and Sunday April 28th and 29th I'm going to run that same video again and I'm going to encourage fans to leave their questions or reactions uh, on that on that uh, on that stage uh, right after you've seen that video uh, you're welcome to leave your feelings about what you actually saw and i'm going to take the next episode to 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 bring out some of these reactions uh to, people leave their names there obviously uh and if they want to leave what city they're in uh, i'm going to pick some really good comments for and against uh, the both directions and it'll give me an opportunity to really explain uh before we leave the snake pit and uh, before we slither away from the snake pit, I'll say, uh, I want to be able to give fans my f true feelings about what happened there, why this was an entity, why it was even there, and uh, how it affects people and how it affected me. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's another program here, basically. There's another episode here, and I want to do that with the next episode. I want to finish the snake pit and I want to finish it in grand style look for that video this Saturday or Sunday on April 28th or 29th and uh, leave your questions your reactions there and I will go in detail next week and try to try to get everybody I can as many questions as I, and reactions as I can answer that have to do with this unique topic with that, we will slither away this week for the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. I'm the great Brian Last. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>